This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to Future CEOs. My name is Gareth Armstrong. It's good to be with you. And what do we do on Future CEOs? Well, we bring the best and the brightest into studio, or sometimes we go to the best and brightest, and we talk to them about their journeys, how they have been able to do what they do. Often, what seems to also happen is we, we see these CEOs and they seem to sit in these ivory towers. And on Future CEO Show, we try and break down that ivory tower, at least kick the door in. Richard, we've kicked your door in. Welcome to Future CEOs. It's good to have you here. Gareth, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure and uh, good day to your listeners. Richard, we have a, an interesting lineup of different CEOs across various industries that we've been able to speak to. In, in this case, I don't think we've ever spoken to someone that's in the second-hand goods industry. So you're, you're our first. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> it's, um, it's interesting that you bring that up because I don't think anybody aspires to, to get involved in an industry that combines second-hand dealing, pawnbroking, and micro-lending. Oh, yes. Um, and, uh, and it's an interesting story, really, in the context that my family come from a small business background. My father's father came to the country in 1897. Uh, he was effectively illiterate. He was somewhat numerate. Mm. But he started a general dealer trading store in a little town called Barclay East in the Eastern Cape. And that business, funnily enough, is still operating today oh, wow. with the fourth generation of my cousins operating. Mm. And it is a traditional trading store. It sells everything from a, a, a needle to a tractor, really, type stuff. Um, and I had a very traditional, uh, in those days, white male South African upbringing. I was brought up in Cape Town. Uh, I went to school in uh, the southern suburbs. I went to UCT with a commercial qualification and uh, started my business life in, um, in IT. Uh, long story short, uh, we came across the cash converter business uh, end of uh, 1992. And uh, I investigated the whole opportunity and, and made a decision to get involved in cash converters. And then I phoned my mama. And I said, you won't believe it, but I'm going to leave the large corporate mm. and become a second-hand dealer, pawnbroker, and micro-lender. Which, 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 to your point, is not what people grow up dreaming to be. Well, she burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And she said, the wheel had turned 360 degrees. We've started back again in 1897. <laughs> I said, uh, she shouldn't be too concerned. We'd obviously seen the opportunity. This was, uh, as I said, late 1992. New South Africa coming uh, in 94, uh, we believed what would be a fantastic opportunity, effectively because the business model is is about uh, buying and selling from people who no longer see use in an item mm. to people that do. And we expected that we were going to get a situation where many people that weren't consumers up until then would become in the context of the new South Africa yeah, this consumerism. This evolution and this movement, yes. Yes. certainly. I, I don't want us to go too far to, toward the business just yet because sure. you've got a unique story in that, um, yes, there was a donkey involved in, uh, <laughs> as I understand, I, I heard this somewhere, there was a donkey involved in exploring South Africa. You were then, a couple of generations down the line, part of a culture that was small business. Yes. It was part of your DNA, but did you feel it? So I think so, yes. So I grew up uh, in, uh, as I said, in Cape Town. We, we lived in Mullerton. I'm one of four kids. I'm the eldest uh, and only son. I've got three sisters. Uh, my dad was a CA. He was the first one in our family to effectively get a tertiary education. He was a CA and he had a small practice. And in the small practice, he used to partner with business people that 
began life effectively as his clients and became partners of his. So as an example, at one point in time, uh, he was involved with manufacturing fiberglass canopies. And I used to go into the factory and say hi and see how everything was done. Mm. Another point in time, he had a small hardware store and I used to go and work for him during school holidays. And so I was always involved in, in, in business per se, irrespective of what it really was. It was, mm. just, it was just part of our DNA. We used to have dinner at night and talk about how your day was. And the day involved him in a particular business, doing an audit of a business and explaining it to us and the like. Ian Fur, the, the founder of Sorbet, mm-hmm. but I mean, he's really a serial retailer, yes. sat with him a little while ago, and he described a very similar setting, which was uh, this, this table dinner conversation, which is, mm-hmm. which is all business. Yeah. What, did, what were some of the, the, the early lessons that you'd learned about business that still serve you today? Well, I think the interesting thing about that is, Irrespective of which business you're in, whether it's that hardware business or the manufacturing the, uh, mm. the fiberglass canopies, it's all about being able to trade. So you, can't, you don't really have a business unless you have a product or a service and you're able to sell it on to somebody mm. at a margin that makes your overall business uh, viable. Mm. So it's really that trading exercise. And I'll give you a little story. When I was at UCT, we were part, myself and my uh, partner, actually, we've known each other for. 25, 30 years, uh, we were part of the, um, uh, the rugby festival uh, organizing committee and we needed to build a stage for a band and we managed to get uh, one of the hardware stores to uh, donate or sell to us at a really cheap price the, the wood to build the stand. Well, it was only used for a Saturday afternoon and at the end of it we had to knock the stand down and do something with the wood. So between us, we decided we'd sell it back to my father and he could use it as wood to build his shelving and his storage environment. It's about just seeing the opportunity and understanding mm. that fundamentally business is all the same. It's, it's packaging a product or service in such a way to a client that needs that product or service and is prepared to pay over a margin uh, that cost you to deliver it. If there was a, a, a mistake that you made early on in your career, and then you, you could just say naivety. We, we, won't, we won't put blame anywhere else but on naivety. <laughs> what was that? Uh... I can give you two. Okay, go so, ahead. Um, so I was an exchange student in America in 1980 after my matric. And uh, I was in the Midwest as an 18, 19-year-old kid. And I came across a thing called a Weber Bry. Mm. And so, yeah, we were on the weekend and we were, they don't bry anything like we do in South Africa. It's, it's processed Vienna sausages mm. or hamburger patties or anything like that. Not, not, not real brying. Yeah, not real meat. Not uh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And so uh, I looked at this thing and I thought, you know, this is so American. Back home, we get some wood off a tree and we dry it out for six months or so. and We make a fire on the ground and we get a roaster. And this would never work in South Africa. Well, no, you know, every second house has got a wee bit bright. Yeah. And then the second one of the bigger uh, opportunity that I missed was cell phones. Mm. I came across cell phones to start with. I thought, you know, it's just, it's just not going to work in South Gimmicky. Africa. Gimmicky. Yes. And why would, why would you want to phone somebody while you're in a taxi and talk to them? So there, there we go. Two very big mistakes. So Alan Not Craig would tell you differently. <laughs> Absolutely, he yeah. saw he saw the opportunity and I didn't. Yeah, and he did. Um, and Vodacom, of course, is the result, and and mm. and some interesting things coming out of that. I understand that you also were involved in Postnet. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. Uh, you got out of that quite early. So so this was a very interesting uh, process in ninety two, ninety three, ninety four when we established the cash converter business. There were actually seven of us as a partnership, 
and we brought PostNet and cash converters into the country at the same time. Cash converters from Australia and PostNet from America. Mm. The thinking behind the concept of PostNet was that, again, we believed there would be a big middle class created in our country mm. and that that middle class would get into business themselves and they would need the services of PostNet. So we developed both of those franchise operations simultaneously. I sold out of uh, the PostNet business in 2000, 2001 when we listed it in, uh, in the, on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and then went with one of my partners out of those seven uh, to focus on cash converters. Mm. Um, what we didn't do was focus. We uh, <laughs> we then uh, we then had the cash converter business, and we bolted on the uh, franchise multi-serve, the shoe cobblers and key cutters. And we also established the first uh, social franchise in the country called Sport for All, mm. and we got involved in furnished service offices, etc., etc., etc. And that was probably the the one thing that I've learned through the process of this is that we. We thought we were specializing. We were specializing in franchising, but we weren't specializing in one thing and doing it extremely well. So a good five or seven years ago, we started divesting from everything besides cash converters with the view to ensuring that we focus on one brand and franchise that particularly well. I'm hearing lots of brands, and, and they, they're brands that are well-known, mm. well-established. Mm. I'm wondering how you choose what brand you choose to get involved in? Okay, so um, that's a very interesting question. Generally speaking, in the context of making choices, sometimes it's good to understand what you don't want to do, and that helps you in making those choices. Mm -hmm. So when we were getting together in the early 1990s, wanting to get into franchising per se, one of the areas that we wanted not to get into was food. We really didn't want to get into the food franchising business. And in fact, also the uh, the petrol business as well. We wanted non-food and retail for a range of different reasons. Um, and that informed the decisions around PostNet, around cash converters, around multi-serve, around sport for all. Um, so it was really around utilizing the business model of franchising in a retail environment that excluded food. Do what you want to do. Don't do what you don't want to do. I think yes. I'm hearing that coming yes. out here. Yes. Let's talk then quickly about what kind of entrepreneur you are. Because you get people that are really good at starting business, you get people that are really good at building business, then you have you get the scale guys, you get a number of different types of individuals. Who, who are you? How would you describe yourself? I think that I've developed over a period of time as I've built my skills in, in running businesses. Um, clearly at the front end, I was pretty good at starting. Um, we got into the business, we... Uh, we we effectively bought the franchise for Southern Africa, so we did that whole deal. Um, I left the large corporate, uh, packed up a flat here in Johannesburg, put it in my 1300 city golf, drove it down to Cape Town, opened the first store, and everything that I owned went in there as the initial stock in opening that business. Um, so startups I understand. Uh, and in fact, the first 10 years of my business career was all about startups, and every mm. time you open a new cash converter retail store, it's about starting it again. Mm. Yes, you have a blueprint and it's a proven business model, but it's again starting it up. The, the next step that I think is part of an evolution that I'm beginning to realize is that we've got to a point now where the business will probably do in excess of 1.6 billion rands of, of retail activity at the front end in our stores across 3 million transactions this year. Mm. And I simply cannot do anything everything. Mm. So what we've done now is we've got to a point where we're starting to build 
a, a senior management team that looks after the key specializations of the business. So we've got a marketing group marketing manager in place with 20 years worth of experience. Our IT group, group IT manager um, comes to us with 25 years experience. And so I'm beginning to learn it's now time to get onto the business and not run it with, with mm. in the context of being in the business. And now it's more about strategy and making decisions about the future and directing the business that way. But you're saying now, uh, and, and this is after years and years and years of, of often what sounds like hands-on, install, hard work, hard labor. Uh, there's some people that are going to be listening to this and they want to do strategy and they want to do all of this now. I don't know if you can. And, uh, and your wry smile seems to say something similar. Yes. So I... I I'm not making out to have the only knowledge on this topic, but I do not. have some experience. So I'm yes. going to talk from the experience. Mm. My sense of it is, unless you have a business, you can't really give too much emphasis on, on the long-term strategic planning. Mm. Uh, it's about, in the, at the beginning of establishing a business, it's all about having that business and ensuring that you're able to sell the product or service that you're, that you're providing to the consumer base you've chosen. Mm. Uh, if you don't have that, you don't have turnover and if you don't have turnover you don't have cash flow and if you don't have cash flow you don't have a business. I remember uh, way back when I was still working for uh, um, Gencore, uh, our financial director, I was arguing, I was an IT specialist, I was arguing to her on the basis that we need to do this for the long term and her response was quite wry as well. She said, well, if we don't do this in the short term, there isn't a long term. Mm. So the short term is all about survival. It's about staying alive and paying the bills and ensuring your creditors effectively serviced regularly and then when you've got when you've got a business you can start thinking about strategy and you can start thinking about long term there's a point on long term that i I just want to a bridge i want us to cross together ceos walk into a business they're there for a particular period of time a small tenure of three to five years and then they move on all they have to do is show value in that short period Mm. It doesn't matter what the cost is afterwards. What's your response to that? Pros and cons to the long-tenure CEO and pros and cons to the short-tenure CEO. So I, ha- I wear multiple hats here. I'm, I'm the CEO as well as the major shareholder in the business. Mm. And the, in that context, I'm intimately incentivized to make sure that this business has a long-term view. And, and I'm an I'm, I'm entrepreneur and a startup here. If you look at the, um, the let's call it the hired guns, that come in and maybe established businesses, uh, possibly listed companies and the like, the world seems to be focused on instantaneous gratification. Mm. And maybe an example of that would be the the U.S. quarterly business results. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if they're not counterproductive. We're focusing on what the business is going to deliver in terms of a profit statement over the next 90 days when the issue has really got to do with three, five, seven years. I'm not, I'm not talking the fact that we're not going to pay our bills in the short term, but I'm talking about building businesses. Mm. I mean, I, I sometimes appreciate visionaries like Elon Musk when, when he's trying to build a business with a 100-year vision, mm. um, being frustrated about uh, analysts talking to him about, yes, but your cash flow looks terrible over the next 90 days. Mm. He well knows that his cash flow looks terrible, but he's, he's about to do something huge and material for the whole world, uh, and his vision is 50 and 100 years. So yes, it's 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 a time frame that you've, I suppose, to a large degree, being a CEO, talks to a longer term time frame. You should be making plans, you and the chairman. You should be, 
you should be continuously thinking three, five, seven, ten years ahead and, and, uh, and redirecting the ship that you're steering to ensure that in, in the future, the iceberg that you can see in three years' time, you're not on its path. Maybe remuneration post-tenure is the answer. <laughs> Maybe that, it is. That would, be, that would be quite interesting. <laughs> Hand over to someone else yes. and then see what yes. they do with it, but yes. you only get paid at the end of their tenure. That, that, yeah. So that was actually your question of remuneration, and I'm not sure that I answered it. It's a difficult question. It's an extremely difficult question because CEOs can make decisions in the short term that benefit their remuneration package but not necessarily benefit the business. Mm. Um, and that's always that, that trade-off that you're mm. trying to make sure you're looking after the, con- the consumers, the uh, shareholders, as well as uh, senior management team. Let's jump back into your story here with cash converters. We start with, with uh, one or two small stores down in, down in the Cape. What does it feel like once you start trading profitably? How long did it t- take you to, to get to that point? With a proven business model, we mm. would hope that time frame is much shorter. But then when did you begin to feel that this was actually a really good decision? Really Part of the reason why we bought an international business rather than go out and establish our own second-hand dealer at that point in time, because second-hand dealing has been around for, for centuries, mm. is that we wanted two things. Uh, we wanted a proven business model, so how to bake this cake, and we wanted a, a brand. Um, yes, the brand wasn't established in South Africa at that point in time, but we we kind of looked into the future and, and and saw cash converters in the in the nineties had uh, two three hundred stores in in ten different countries around the world. So we saw it as an expanding business. Um, I had no experience in retail, no experience in franchising, and no experience in second hand dealing, and I was going to be the CEO. So I went to Perth, trained there for three months, um, and then came back to South Africa and we opened our first store. It was critical for us in the context of setting the business up to sell to third-party franchisees that we that we knew what this recipe was about. Mm. So, uh, so I traded the business for the first year to 18 months. Um, it took us, I think, six to seven months to break even. And it was it was hard work. Yeah. Uh, I didn't take a day off in that uh, in that first uh, six to nine months. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story about that shortly mm. as well. Uh, and it was seven days a week uh, work. Uh, I effectively mentioned to you drove down with my city golf to Cape Town, uh, put the stock in the store, and and uh, and moved back with my folks at the tender age of thirty three. By the way, you used an interesting phrase, which was, um, "and everything that I had, I put into the store, including yes. your own, yeah, including my own kit." <laughs> Absolutely, and, and that 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 is a big deep breath moment for people uh, making this decision. Generally speaking, and we realize this with our franchisees because we walked this path. Uh, When we bought the master license, it cost us an arm and a leg. Mm. When we opened the first store, it cost us an arm and a leg. And we had, as partners, invested everything into it. Um, Like I say, so much so that I moved back with my folks and and lived off them for the first six months. Mm. But it was literally, I was at work at uh, half past seven in the morning and home home at probably 6.30, 7 o'clock in the evening, seven days a week nine months on the trot. The benefit that I did have was I was unmarried and had no kids. And as as a consequence, I had very little dependency. Um, If this didn't work for me, yes, it would not be a good thing because everything I'd built up in the previous 10 years would uh, would no longer be there and I'd have to start again. But it wasn't as if I couldn't pay the school fees Mm. or the like. So that was the the first sort of uh, uh, year to, to 18 months. It was incredibly hard work. 
I haven't found a way of making a, or building a sustainable business without it being hard work. There is truism, I think, of in life, what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. You've, got to, you've got to plant before you can harvest. So that was step number one. Then we'd, we'd proven in our own minds that this thing can work. We started selling franchises in the Western Cape. Our first franchisee we opened in Belleville in the Western Cape. And then I moved uh, from the Paro store to the Belleville store and helped him establish that business. Uh, he was in partnership with his brother-in-law, the first two of them uh, in that business. And, and, and they're still with us. In fact, one of the guys is still with us after 20-odd years wow, yeah. in the business, which is fantastic. Yeah. We then grew that to about 10 to a dozen stores in three or four years, and now we had a, a franchise operation that was located in the Western Cape that was sustainable and profitable, and it was at that point in time that I moved here to Johannesburg to start developing the business here. Yeah. It was a five-year plan. I thought I'd move back down to Cape Town in early 2000s, and uh, now I'm 20 years in Johannesburg and loving it. Well, excellent. it's a great place to go on holiday. <laughs> it is. Let's twist the conversation then back to your leadership. What um, have you learned or what are currently your three pillars of CEO leadership? I think it begins and ends uh, with the quality of the people you're bringing on board. Now, this is with respect to whether you're talking franchisees, their staff, or the staff you have at the, uh, at the head office component. Um, it's it's really about value set, um, and we're we're fixated on it. Actually, <laughs> part of what we've inherited as our model from uh, from Cash Converters International is a value set around five different values: passion, professionalism, integrity, respect, and collaboration. And we use those as what we call the the, the foundation of our business, and that builds to a large degree the culture of the organisation. I hear the values answer all the time. How do you actually make it real? Because it sounds nice, but... Yes. So you, you have to live it, and I think you've got to model it. And it mm. starts with the leader. So if I'm going to adopt a, a value, let's say, of, of passion, uh, if I'm not passionate about this business, I can't expect everybody else in the organization to be passionate about it. If professionalism is a key and cornerstone of our business, if I'm not professional, in other words, if I uh, don't arrive at meetings on time, if I'm slovenly dressed, uh, if my communication to those around me is disrespectful, well, then, then I'm not modeling the behavioral set mm. that we're looking for. And that really is, it is core to us. It's something we have rolled into the organization over the last three-odd years as a formal uh, uh, policy, whereas historically it was more so just uh, culturally how myself and our partners behaved. As we've got bigger and bigger, it needs a it needs a system to actually mm. implement into the organisation, and we've been we've been focusing on that a lot. So so three things that I would look at is start with the values, um, and then build the team around you with complementary skills. So one of the things I've learned over the years is that I'm not good at everything, mm. and in fact, if the, if you're looking for tips for future CEOs, it's probably my number one. Figure out what your weaknesses are first um, and then what your strengths are. Um, and the context behind that is that um, I really want to surround myself with people who support my weaknesses mm. because I'm, I, I'm of the view that I'm not going to go bang on about my weakness or weak about them. I need to get somebody else to, to support me in that side, mm. in that side of the, the, uh, the technical side of the business. So as an example, I'm 
very bad at marketing. And so I have a very good uh, group marketing manager that, that handles that um, aspect of our business that we need to, we need to handle. What, what you're speaking to here is a certain kind of self-awareness and, and yes. knowledge and understanding that often takes quite a lot of emotional maturity to um, acknowledge. How, did, how have you been able to do that? Uh, the, and I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a man. I'm a blunt instrument. <laughs> I've got ego. Yeah. How do you get past some of that? In the final analysis, whether you're selling secondhand uh, uh, toasters or taking rockets to the moon, you're always dealing with people. Yeah. And, and my role as CEO is to get the best out of the people that I have in the team that I've chosen to surround me with. Mm. So the more aware you are of what is going on, what is being said, and probably more so what is not being said, because generally speaking, people don't tell CEOs everything that mm. is happening. Yep. Uh, you need to have your ears open and your eyes open all the time to determine what's actually going on. I heard a great quote, and it stuck with me and probably stick with me forever, it's, and it's from the, the person that has brought this, this idea of always ask the why question into the public domain, when that's Simon Sinek. Yes. And he has a, a quote which goes, your job is to not understand what is being asked, but why it is being asked in the first place. Yes. And I think that's yes. what I'm hearing you yes. say here. That's your second pillar, your, your first values, your second was skills. Yes. Uh, and skills as they relate, of course, to people and yes. opportunities there, your third. So, so it's common values, complementary skills. And then in terms of building our, uh, our overall model, we have something we call uh, the wealth creation model. And it doesn't have a, a, a one pillar. It effectively has six pillars around which we're focusing as in terms of your model, the third one. Mm. So that revolves around technology, people, operations, financial management, marketing, and uh, in today's world, compliance, which has become an, a, a massive issue mm. uh, in, in, in running any business. As an example, when we started the business in 1994, the Second Hand Goods Act was an act number 23 from 1955. It okay. had seven pages in it. And today's act has been, uh, 2009 act is probably 250 pages. Wow. So just give you a sense of the complexity of running a business from a compliance point of view in today's world. Mm. What is the absolute best advice that you've ever received? Um, the best advice I think I, that I could share with is stay focused. So part of the challenge of being an entrepreneur is that there's so many opportunities happening all over the all the time that, that and it's part of the the mistake we probably made in our uh, journey in business is that we, we just didn't stay focused. We got involved in so many things that we couldn't do everything that we had to the quality level we needed to do it. Yeah. Uh, and it's part of the uh, part of a recognition that we found over the last couple of years, five, six, seven years ago, when we started divesting of everything bar cash converters to really ensure that we could do cash converters at the best quality level possible, deliver a business model to our cash converter franchisees that allows them to be profitable and build wealth over a long period of time uh, and just do that well. Mm. So focus. Focus. The worst advice you've ever received and potentially acted on <laughs> and what did you learn? I'm not sure about the worst advice. Um, I can't think of anything right now. Um, people are always giving you advice. They're always, you know, around the bry, et cetera, et cetera, and mm. this, that, the next thing. I think to a large degree it's about 
It's about filtering. I, I, um, <laughs> let me share with you. My wife says I take advice poorly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I, te- I tend to only tune into uh, advice when it's been given by people I believe uh, have value to add. Mm. Uh, a lot of things, really, a lot of stuff that you hear and you read is, 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 is not helpful in any way. And it ends up diffusing your focus. Um, so, so as an example, um, one of the issues that, that we need to teach our management team and our executive is what is your objective for this year? And drill that in. So to give you an example, at the end of this year, we're looking for 105 version 3 profitable stores running our new point of sale system. That's six words. Mm. That's all. Mm. And what my job is to focus our management team on ensuring they deliver that and do nothing else. And the nothing else is really about all the other noise that happens around running a business. Mm. It's life happening while you're trying to deliver on that objective. Mm. And you may have the best plan in the world, but if you don't operationalize it and deliver it, it's meaningless. Mm. So no worst advice, but that was good advice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Are you a reader? Mm-hmm. I do read quite a lot. The most influential book that you've read? So I, I um, came across a chap by the name of Rene Cariel towards the end of last year, and he's, he is a management uh, guru, and the crux of his book, this book he's uh, written is called Spike, stands for Strengths Positively Identify Kickstart Excellence. And it talks again to recognizing one's strengths and weaknesses. And his philosophy is this. You've got to understand what your strengths are. Mm. And you've got to recognize what your weaknesses are as well. And he, he argues that you should play to your strengths all the time and completely ignore your weaknesses and get somebody else to bolster those weaknesses for you. So an example he would say in the book over here is you go to a performance appraisal with your manager in a large corporate three-hour exercise. The first 15 minutes is spent on your strengths are fantastic. You do very well, but Mm. let's spend the next two and a half hours or whatever it is on identifying your weaknesses and trying to get you to perform better in that role. I'm not an accountant. I'm never going to be an accountant. Don't try and force me to be an accountant. That's why. I've identified that as a weakness, and my business partner is our CFO, and he's got the CA qualification, and he's the best accountant around. So we've got common values with complementary skills in this Exco team who are all working with the same value set, the same culture, but in their specialist technical focus. Mm. Richard, thank you so very much. We are running out of time, but we certainly, this is a valuable conversation, insight a minute. And maybe just as a final question, as a parting thought. So go back in time. Go to the young 20-year-old future CEO you. Give that future CEO you a little bit of advice and insight. I think it would go back to focus. It okay. would have to focus. go back to focus. I'd, I'd probably be running a bigger operation if I'd stayed focused on doing one thing really well. Mm. Having said that, life doesn't work that way. So mm. it's easy to look backwards over the 20 years and say, stay focused. But I simply didn't have the experience at the time to know which was the right path to tread. Mm. So maybe maybe I needed mentorship a lot earlier with people a lot wiser than me that could see the future better. Mm. But I had to tread this path of, uh, look, we stayed focused in franchising, we stayed focused in non-food, 
but we should have really done one thing and one thing only over uh, a longer period of time. So focus and find someone that you can learn from. A, Absolutely. A, a mentor or a mentor. coach something. Yes. Yes. Or you can listen to a podcast like Future CEOs. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, thank you for Absolutely. your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. We really appreciate it. And you'll catch us same time, same place next week here on Future CEOs. Richard, thank you again. Thank you very much, Gareth. Thanks for the opportunity. This is CliffCentral.com.